bum bum bottom 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 bum
hoodies, backpacks, totes. Make sure that you get the ones with the official CBCC stamp, because some of the designs have the stamp, some of them don't, and we would appreciate the representation. We are not getting any kind of- Kickback, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is strictly uh, for Elliot, by Elliot, but also for us, because it helps spread the word of CBCC. I actually included CBCC merch on my vision board for 2020. And uh, this is the closest to like the boom manifested because after putting that little cutout on my vision board, I put no effort towards towards doing any kind of merchandise. And, And Elliot just did this out of his own heart and creativity, and it is so cool. Yeah, and you can also get stickers of the iconic indie characters and the 90s terrible costume uh, adverts. Uh, you're going to want those on your laptop. They look, I mean, that's what I did with them. They look great. Yeah. So what should I put on my 2021 vision board? Because uh, clearly I have like a two-month lag I mean, on doing the I vision board. I think having a merch store that's an official CBCC merch store, that's that's that still belongs on the vision board. Uh, the newsletter needs to be on the vision oh, board. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're currently trying to manifest. I also want on the vision board some uh, – we've gotten – like. Elliot's stuff is like professional. I wouldn't call it like fan art. What I want is some super unprofessional, terrible fan art. (laughs) Um, It can be done by an adult, but I prefer it to be done by a child in crayon. Please and thank you. Ah, I'll take any kind of fan art from terrible to great. That's what I'll take. (laughs) Uh, That means people are listening and that is rad. Uh, So, okay, for our latest X-Couple series, rather than focusing on one couple over the course of four episodes, we're covering four couples over four episodes. Last week, we discussed Shatterstar and Richter as seen in the miniseries Shatterstar Reality Star. And this week, we're zeroing in on Storm and Callisto as seen in the early aughts ongoing Extreme X-Men. It's not Extreme X-Men, Brad. It's Extreme X-Men. You have to put the extra... Because that's what makes it hard. Extreme X-Men might be my least favorite title of any X-Book. The main reason being, I don't think you can properly enjoy this title without a case of Mountain Dew or snapping into a crate of Slim Jims. (laughs) Uh, And guess what? Lisa and I don't drink soda or feast on processed meat anymore, so we may not just be able to properly understand this title's vibe. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's why I don't like it. We are the least X-couple of any couple. Not X, but like extreme. We're not extreme. We're not X's because we're still together. Yeah. And we're not X-Men because unfortunately we are baseline and (laughs) uh, we're not extreme because we're us. So we're the least X. I see what you're saying. Okay. Well, I mean, don't you think the extreme adjective of this title is a few years too late anyway? The comic came out in 2001, but I feel like the extreme era was the 1990s. Although I guess Harold and Kumar go to White Castle came out around this time and they were making some serious extreme jokes throughout that movie. When I think extreme, I think of the X Games, which started in 1995. I just Wikipedia it, you guys. I don't have this on hand. (laughs) Deep research. Um, But they weren't televised until 2002. So I think it was very hip to call it extreme. So is the extreme era 2001, 2002? I think it's the very early odds. Well, okay. Well, Extreme X-Men was part of a revamp that hit all the X-Men titles in 2001. 
Prior to the revamp, Chris Claremont was writing both Uncanny X-Men and the Adjectiveless X-Men. A year earlier, the very first X-Men movie dropped, an editorial at the X office allegedly forced Claremont to manipulate his two titles to match the tone and vibe of the film. Marvel's editor-in-chief at the time, Joe Quesada, took Claremont off both titles and asked if he would rather write Uncanny X-Men under the guidance of Grant Morrison, who just joined New X-Men, the rechristened adjectiveless X-Men, or if he would want his own separate X-title. Of course, Claremont took the latter, and Extreme X-Men was the result. Yeah, that seems hurtful. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a bummer, right? But don't cry for Claremont, Lisa, because after Morrison leaves in 2004, he comes back to Uncanny X-Men while Joss Whedon and John Cassidy launch Astonishing X-Men. I don't think there has ever been another writer who has contributed more stories to X-Men canon than Chris Claremont. Think about it. Not only did he write the OG title, Uncanny, from 1975 to 1991 straight, he's done repeated stints on Uncanny, Extreme, Excalibur, New Excalibur, Gen Next, X-Men Forever, a Nightcrawler series, and so on and so on. Lisa, I know you love the OG Claremont run, but it's hard not to read Extreme X-Men here and think this writer doesn't really jive with contemporary comics or whatever you call the comics coming out of the aughts. Mm. I mean, can you believe that this comic was being released at the same time as Morrison's new X-Men and just before Whedon's Astonishing dropped? I can't, and I have a hard time believing that this is written by the same guy who wrote the Dark Phoenix saga. Oh, really? Because I re what I really loved about those comics was his use of thought bubbles to sure. create this, like, um, context for every spoken word. I, I mean, yes, there are no thought bubbles, because at this point, thought bubbles were, like, a faux pas, but you still get that much exposition in the endless stream of word balloons. I think it's called X. Position. Yeah, yeah, you get that exposition uh, because like Claremont is, you know, while he may feel um, a little removed from what he was doing back in the Dark Phoenix saga, I still think his style of endless chatter is remains there. Like, mm. I do feel like this is Claremont, but it's all the worst elements of Claremont. And what he lacks in his style, he makes up for in raves. Yeah, and there is delight to be had in this comic through its absurdity, through its extremity. The reason we're covering Storm and Callisto this week is because we had a flood of requests from various Twitter peeps a few months back after fellow podcasters Bitches on Comics quote tweeted one of our pleas for couple recommendations. It was clear that there was serious interest in covering this particular somewhat cantankerous relationship Okay, not somewhat, totally cantankerous relationship. Bitches on Comics co-host Sarah Sentry actually wrote an excellent piece on Storm and Callisto back in 2019 for Sci-Fi Wire. We definitely recommend everyone give that stellar writing a read, and I'll of course include a link in the show notes for it. When we asked Sarah on Twitter what she thought would be the best comic book storyline to explore the relationship between Storm and Callisto, she recommended Extreme X-Men The Arena, so you have her to blame or thank. Uh, <laughs> give her a like and a follow. Canonically, Storm and Callisto are not in a romantic relationship, although Claremont has stated that he queer-coded Storm when Marvel prevented her from being an out-and-out -out lesbian. What's most interesting to me about Storm and Callisto's coupling is how they both helped each other reach their next stage of character evolution. And that evolution is at the core of Sarah Century's article. So read that. Storm and Callisto first squared off against each other in Uncanny X-Men number 170, 
1970, written by, you guessed it, Chris Claremont, and illustrated by Paul Smith and Bob Wyasek. Wyasek? Wyasek. And published in June of 1983. Taking place shortly after the events of the Dark Phoenix Saga, the X-Men encountered the Morlocks beneath the New York City streets. These sewer-dwelling mutants were cursed with mutations that blocked them from passing in human society. Through this shunning, the Morlocks develop an absolute contempt for those above, and this includes the X-Men. The Morlocks kidnap Angel. Storm is made deathly ill by a mutant called Plague. Callisto and her Morlocks easily gain the upper hand, but Storm challenges Callisto, a duel to the death, and who Whomever remains standing will take leadership over the Morlocks. Callisto thinks she's got Storm beat, and so do the readers. After all, Callisto is not hindered by the same morality as Storm. She'll pull her punches when Callisto won't. Surprise, surprise, Storm plunges her knife into Callisto's chest, killing the Morlock leader and taking claim of the underground mutants. From this point forward, Storm enters a much darker mindscape. This is where her punk mohawk look comes into fashion. And at the same time though, like she's a terrible Morlock leader, completely ignoring them, which gives the wretched mutant mask an opportunity to sneak in and manipulate the Morlocks for her purposes. Like Remy with the Thieves Guild. Yeah, yes. They cannot multitask. No, X-Men That's are, not no. one of their mutant powers. That is not one of their mutant powers. Thankfully, Callisto finds her way back to the land of the living. Oh, comics where no one is ever dead. Blah, blah, blah. Old argument don't care about anymore. Storm positions Callisto back as leader of the sewer dwellers and an uneasy bond forms between the two ferocious characters. That's pretty much where they are when we meet them back up in Extreme X-Men The Arena. But Lisa, before we can get into that, we got to talk about our ex-couple gurus and their book, The Normal Bar. How are we applying their wisdom to Storm and Callisto? Yes, we are going to be using the New York Times best-selling book full title, The Normal Bar, The Surprising Secrets of Happy Couples and What They Reveal About Creating a New Normal in Your Relationship, a book about bettering relationships through the super squishy science of <laughs> statistics by Christiana Northrup, Dr. Pepper Schwartz, and Dr. James Witt. The Normal Bar is based on an over 1,300-question survey of over 70,000 participants and a resulting 1.7 million data points. The team behind the normal bar claims that by using these data points, they can present the reader a normal bar spectrum of what other couples' relationships look like so that you can make a more informed decision when creating a new normal in your relationship. On the last episode, I presented some of my reservations about the normal bar Namely, that their adherence to a gender binary invalidates most of their findings. And how can we really trust self-reported data yes. anyway? Last week, I had only read the introduction and part one entitled Getting Together to apply to Richter and Shatterstar. And now, having read part two entitled Living Together, my skepticism has only gotten more pronounced. Oh, no. Like, last episode, I had, like, one eyebrow slightly raised. <laughs> now, both of my eyebrows are fully up there. Like, the gap between brow it. and hairline is lessening. Though that may be because I haven't gotten a wax in, like, over a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pandemic. First... Let's start with a little where are they now with the authors of The Normal Bar. Let's get VH1 up in here. Ooh. The easiest to find through the magics of the internet is Dr. Pepper Schwartz. She is the only one with a Wikipedia page, hashtag deep research, which describes her as an American sociologist, 
sexologist, and professor at the American University of Washington. She has authored many books and papers, as well as a column for the AARP, but she is most notably a relationship expert on the reality show Married at First Sight, in which a couple marries upon meeting each other. Yeah, that's no good. I don't like that show. I haven't religiously watched a dating relationship show since Tila Tequila's Shot at Love. (laughs) That one's worse. (laughs) (laughs) I watched, I mean, I watched that one. I watched the guy from Guns N' Roses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched, I love. Of New York. Yeah, I watched all that stuff. <laughs> I was way into it. I stopped watching them, not because I wasn't interested, but because I was too interested. Too interested. Yeah, same, yeah, that's the same reason I stopped. Dr. James Witt seems to be still doing more or less what he's listed as doing in the About the Authors page, which says he's a professor of sociology and director at the Center of Social Science Research at George Mason University. Hey! Be and my alma mater. Go Patriots. I guess. Not really. I don't care. (laughs) No nostalgia for my college. No, me neither. Christiana Northrup, whom we got to know from the introduction as the brain mother of the normal bar concept, is the enigma of the group. The About the Authors page says she is the CEO of You Got Challenged, Inc., a customized online program that motivates people to change their normal to a healthier one. But I can't find any evidence of it with the exception of the Normal Bar website, where the survey seems to still be up. I think I said last week that it was down, but that's because I was using the link in my ebook. It says that they are still collecting information for a follow-up book, The Normal Bar, for singles and dating. She does have a Twitter page, but she seems to have removed herself from the public eye since 2017. Interesting. Yeah. Which is her right. Yeah. Here are my current pet peeves about the normal bar beyond just distrusting self-reported data. I'll admit I hold relationship books that seem to make scientific sounding claims to a higher standard than, say, (laughs) Common or Lindsay King Miller of Ask a Queer Chick because they're openly speaking from their own experience and what they found to be true in the context of their own lives. Yeah, so this is saying, like, this is data. These are hard facts. Exactly. The normal bar is presenting the facts of their data, so I would hope that they would support other claims in their book pertaining to advice with data from other experts. My qualms are threefold. Qualm number one... Sometimes I get the sense that they're cherry-picking the data to support their points because they rarely, if ever, give you the entire spread of the data. There are charts, but they are often charts with the least intriguing information. Qualm number two. Like almost every relationship book we've read thus far, they include anecdotes within the chapter, like Marianne and Steve have been married for 17 years and have a disagreement about laundry. But who are these people? In Esther Perel's Mm. Mating in Captivity, we knew her examples were her patients and her counseling practice. But none of these experts are therapists or counselors. Are they anonymous survey participants? I don't think so. I suspect they're fully fabricated fan fiction about their own flawed findings. (laughs) I would not be surprised. Qualm number three. While they are quick to cite their survey for all of the statistical findings, They don't cite sources for the advice portions or exercises. There is a resources section in the back matter of the book, which includes many of our previous love gurus, Gary Chapman of the Five Love Languages, John Gottman of Eight Dates, Sue Johnson of Hold Me Tight, (laughs) and Esther Perel of Mating in Captivity, 
But without citations, we have no idea how any of these resources were used. Maybe they're intended as resources for us, the reader, like further reading. I have no idea. Now I've let my skeptical flag fly. I will have to say I'm still intrigued by some of the statistical data they've found, even if I'm less in love with how it's being presented in the context of a self-help book. And I still think it's fun to toss in some of the normal bar findings into our relationship discussion. So like we did with Richter and Shatterstar, I will be pepper schwartzing in the survey findings <laughs> into our discussion of Storm and Callisto to hopefully bring a statistical perspective to their and our relationship. But before we can uh, climb that grain of salt, that mountain of salt, that <laughs> Himalayan salt, we got to do some words of affirmation. Last week, we had a lovely new crop of patrons join our community, and this week we were sent the most loving reviews on our Apple podcast page. Aww. There are many ways to support us, and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts is probably the most effective in helping us reach new listeners. We're climbing those charts like that Himalayan salt one review at a time, people. This week, our five-star review comes from Uberlad. Lisa, why don't you give that a read? Ah, I would love to. A thoughtful blend of analysis and comic books. Take comic reviews, self-affirmation, and a couple's workshop and blend them together in this podcast that manages to be fun and informative. Plus, don't forget that whole self-improvement aspect. The host's hard work and commitment to this gimmick and a healthy marriage too, yes. makes this a great pod for grown-ups who are still looking to learn a little bit while still enjoying their comics. Their attention to detail and thoughtful analysis really stands out above other comic book podcasts. Oh, yeah. Uber lad. Thank I understand you. how you got called Uber because you are the Uber best. <laughs> you know, comics are our love language, but honestly, words of affirmation, that's our that's our legit, real deal love language. That's what fills our love tank. And we love hearing from you guys. We love when you you know go out of your way. You don't have to, but when you do and you leave us a great review like this, uh, I mean, I when I see it on iTunes or if Lisa sees it on iTunes first, then we, we immediately share it with each other and it like puts a bounce in our step. It's a legit... A lift to our day. Yes, yes. I've been known when I'm feeling blue to read yeah. our reviews. How yeah. terrible. That's a little too vulnerable. I, I, guess what? I think a lot of podcasters do it because I do it as well. So don't <laughs> don't don't feel too badly. So uh, words of affirmation are our love language. But now let's get into the dark side of the ring with Extreme X-Men issues 36 through 39, which were published between February of 2004 and February of 2004. Uh, yeah, that's right. You heard me. That's not a typo. At this point in time, the comic was being published weekly, and that might explain why there are seven. Whoa! Yes, seven inkers on this book. Chris Claremont is the sole writer. Igor Cordy is the sole penciler. But the inkers are Scott Hanna, Sandy Floria, Igor Cordy again, Mark McKenna, Andrew Papoy, Norm Ratmund, and Joseph Rubenstein. The colors are provided by Transparency Digital and the letters by VC's Russ Wooten. Special shout out to cover artist Salvador LaRocca. Here's the plot synopsis taken straight from Goodreads. Storm takes center stage in this special story, taking her on a journey of self-discovery. 
Aurora Monroe, the weather-wielding mutant goddess, ventures to a faraway realm and makes startling discoveries about herself when she's forced to endure a brutal combat in a fight-or-die gladiator ring. Vague. Yeah, it's definitely that. I also think it's interesting that they refer to it as a quote-unquote special story, as if it was an after-school special of some sort. Oh, you know, Brad, that special time in every woman's life when she begins to get these strange urges in her belly that she just really needs to get into a gladiatorial <laughs> ring. Uh, I mean, I certainly think that is what Roger Corman and Chris Claremont think happens in a woman's uh, awakening. Like, uh, they are big fans of arena combat. And you know what? Uh, I'm a big fan of arena combat. And I like how this comic starts off with... This character, this shadowy figure emerging from a dark corridor, a gate is rising. They are entering the arena. We don't know exactly who it is at the start. Although, guess what? Spoilers. It's Storm. Storm is entering the arena. And then we flash back. And I don't normally like stories that introduce you into a, a tense point of combat or like, stuff's about to go down, and then let's kick it back. But what I like about the arena is they repeat this first page for every first page of every issue in this arc. It works for me. And each issue, she's a little bit further down that corridor until we finally get to see her in full, covered in those, like, tribal yeah, those tattoos. sigils. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 so I, I initially was like, no, not this trope again. But by the second issue and by the third issue, I was like, yeah, I'm down for this trope. Um, I would uh, like the text that goes with the trope changes each time, but only a little bit. Some of those phrases keep returning the cheering of an impatient crowd and that they need to see their star. And like, I feel like this is a side of Storm we don't really see anywhere else. I've never read, a like, a dedicated Storm title. But to me, she always has seemed kind of above the glory. But in this series, she's like, I just need applause. I need to be the center of attention. I need to, like, expose and celebrate my power in a, like, I, I just want to be the star. I think Storm is one of those characters where different writers have very different ideas of who that character is. Mm -hmm. And Claremont, once he went through that first Morlock story with Storm where she does plunge the blade into Callisto's chest and then she goes, like, full punk, you know, mohawk mode, once Claremont developed her into that idea... He likes to keep her there. So when he retakes over a title and, and it gets to play with Storm again, he usually brings her back into that headspace. Mm -hmm. of, of really testing her boundaries and and fighting the idea of and, being Xavier's vision yeah, of her. And being aggressive. Mm -hmm. like, like she is a combatant when Claremont is writing her. But we do flashback yeah. and we see... Storm and Gambit, they're returning on a flight from the Texas presidential ranch because Storm has been setting up the XSE, which is like, I guess, like a cops for mutants kind of situation. I mean, it seems very shady to me. So the X-Men, the extreme X-Men, have partnered with the United Nations and agreed to be a police force 
for mutants. So they don't trust humans to be policing mutants. So we're going to do it ourselves. And oh, that makes me feel all kinds of squidgy. <laughs> and um, things between her and Gambit seem a little awkward, to say the least. He isn't being his usual chatty self. But once they land at Rogue's Ranch in California and, you know, they get off that plane and she springs into his arms. She goes like, did, you know, did Storm steal you away from me? And he's like, she she did try. And guess what? She really did try, I guess. It's funny because I didn't really like harp on that moment until you were mentioning it before we hit record on this episode. So we did go back and see like, well, is there more to that story? And in the previous issues, uh, there is a very steamy scene uh, involving a fully nude Aurora making out with Gambit. And Gambit's like, look, you know, we shared a kiss, but uh, Rogue gets the whole me, so nothing's going to happen here. And I, I was I was a little scandalized. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, as, especially after spending an entire series on the relationship between Rogue and Remy, I don't want to see him messing around on her. Yeah, and so in, in that scene, it's also worth noting, uh, is interrupted by another group of mutants. So... Who knows what would have happened if that kiss had not been uh, halted or put on pause. And the way Igor Cordy frames that splash page of Rogue and Gambit uh, rushing into each other's arms, you also have Storm in the foreground observing the whole scene. So it's it's easy to imprint, like, she might feel a little rejected, right? She's feeling isolated from the rest of the group. And the fact that she has agreed to be cops for the United Nations, that information when once delivered to Bishop and Cannonball, uh, they're not really cool with it either. Particularly Bishop, who's like, I'm yeah. from a dystopian future where there was like a mutant police thing and it did not turn out great. But Aurora's response to that is... Well, I'm an X-Man and I believe in hope. And that's when it's suddenly introduced that she is going on a mission solo. She is looking for this slaver who has connections to Elias Bogan, who is basically the big shadowy bad guy manipulating all the devious things behind the scenes throughout the course of Extreme X-Men. He's associated with the Hellfire Club. He may even be like the founding inspiration for the Hellfire Club, but the character itself is new to Claremont's Extreme X-Men. She says that she is an X-Men who believes in hope, but we hear in her, like, in her narration later, like, things like, I've never felt joy in my life. I've yeah. never felt excitement. I've never, like, I've never had goosebumps before. So later we get the impression that She's lost a lot of her faith in, if not the X-Men, in herself as an X-Men. And so she's kind of putting on a false front as this leader. And I think these previous relationship failures are part of that despair she's feeling as well. Like that encounter with Gambit that did not go so well. She's also dealing with a relationship that is just uh, puttered out with Slipstream, the mm -hmm. character of Slipstream. So she doesn't have a lot of joy going on right now. And she's trying to put on this front of being an X-Men leader. 
Sam, right before she leaves, is like, hey, are you going to need any backup? And she's like, you know, I'll call if I need any backup. And Bishop says, no, you won't. Too cocky, too stubborn, <laughs> too proud. Judgy. And that'll be the death of you. He's so judgy at that but moment. But I think that he's on to something. Yes, yes, he is. Over the next two pages, she gives a brief origin story of her beginnings in Africa and then becoming Charles Xavier's vision of what he wanted her to be and how she feels like, well, I'm not like Xavier. Like, I'm not a teacher. I am a protector is really who I am. But recently, she was almost killed in battle and she doesn't know if her capabilities are the same as before she flatlined on that hospital table. And she, so she says, I have to know if my body is ready and my spirit. She doesn't know how nearly dying has changed her. So she's not really looking to follow up on a lead as much as she wants to get into a dangerous situation so she can really test her resolve and test her capabilities. So I think that like self-esteem wise, she's in a fragile place. Yeah, she wants to be away from the sight of the X-Men. So she can she can have a little bit of room to fail. Yeah, and so she goes to Madripoor and she plans to meet up with Yukio. And this is a conversation that we see uh, off screen. And Yukio is on a building top where she promised to be. And then she flings herself off and Storm freaks out. She's like, oh my God, Yukio, what are you doing? She swoops in, rescues Yukio, and Yukio just starts laughing and laughing and laughing because she knew Storm was watching and Storm would rescue her. She says, I figure you'll always be there to catch me, Aurora, and when you're not, I'll just work things out for myself. Um, As we get, uh, we have more intimate scenes between Aurora and Yukio, we discover, like, that Yukio is like her crazy friend. Yeah. She's the one she hangs out with when she really needs to let loose. And Yukio is always telling her, like, you have to let that animal inside yourself free every once in a while and and be wild. You are practicing too much self-control. So this episode is focusing on Callisto and Storm and their relationship, but we could easily make this episode a Yukio and Storm uh, conversation as well. I think that they have a really sweet and complimentary relationship. I also like the fact that Aurora has an outlet that's not an X-Men. Yeah. Like, so she's in the life because she is a trained assassin, but she um, has the outside perspective of being a baseline human. Yukio is one of those characters with ties to Wolverine's Japanese adventures. She was originally hired to assassinate Wolverine, but of course, when you go to assassinate Wolverine and you enter combat with that guy... You kind of develop a crush on him. You want to get lost in those mutton chops. Yeah, you want to give him a little bit of a scratch. And so she hangs on with Wolverine. And in hanging on with Wolverine, she meets her his fellow X-Men. And she develops a relationship with Storm. Yeah, they're buds. And uh, apparently that slaver thing, not that important because they've planned to go dancing and have a night on the town (laughs) before she gets down to that serious XSE business. Yukio has brought some 
Luke's. She has boxes of clothes <laughs> for Storm. And Storm, before even looking at the outfit, is like, uh, no. And Yukio replies like, are you afraid of the clothes? Or are you afraid of the woman this outfit is going to unleash? That reveal at the club is pretty incredible. And the way that Igor Cordy delivers it, because on the previous page, you have uh, seven panels. You have like a big top panel revealing the arena club. And then you have six panels of the bouncer who is rejecting everyone who doesn't meet the style of the club. And he was like, no, not you. Absolutely not. Get out of here. Forget about it. Then you turn the page to see Yukio and Storm in those looks. Oh, God. And like, you know, I can't tell if that's sexy or terrifying. And is that a result of Igor Cordy's art or the style of the early aughts. Aurora's outfit to me is extremely early aughts when it was very popular for things to be super lace up was like a big thing. But also this was the time of the super low rise jean. Yeah. So any uh, of my uh, elder millennials out there, <laughs> like going and trying to have a day in high school when you're wearing super low rise jeans and a midriff shirt where it's just like, how am I supposed to be paying attention in AP US history when my butt crack is out 100% of the time? <laughs> but like what I think is super crazy about Aurora's outfit is not only do you get the butt cleavage in the back, but the way it laces down so low in the front. Yeah. Like, I feel like we're, there's a threat of having some cleavage in the front, and I'm not talking her boobs. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know. And, and, and that material appears to be rubber. Ne neoprene. Is it neoprene? Neoprene, yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess it could be neoprene. Uh, but it's intense. It's an, it's an intense splash. Like, when you turn that page, you are slapped with it. And it does feel like, whoa, some goddesses have arrived. But it's it's so intense that I, that I'm like, oh, I'm, it's, I gotta it's, step back. It's ugly. The looks are ugly. I actually really like the look of the woman in the background to the left of Aurora, where We're, she has yeah. like kind of like a purple, like furry coat. Like she's wearing a purple cousin it. Yeah, yeah, and then but then she has a, like a matching wig. I think that that looks really cool. And the guy uh, to the left of Yukio is wearing the pirate shirt from Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do like the neck, uh, the necklace that Aurora is wearing. It's like a, a full on collar. And if you go into, you know, it's based on like Maasai warrior uh, attire. If you go back into Igor Cordy's notes and his sketches, he does go over several of the designs for her outfits and breaks down all the pieces. Oh, that's so and cool. he did do hundreds of outfit sketches for this run in particular. So he was very keyed in on the fashion of the day and what someone like Storm would be wearing. Because these looks do look like they are ripped off of America's Next Top Model or something Tyra Banks was wearing or Heidi Klum or Amon. But would Igor Cordy make it to the next episode of Project Runway? <laughs> I'm not I'm not so sure. 
But it's really important that Storm go out feeling that she looks her best. And do you know why, Brad? Why, Lisa? 88% of women <laughs> and 75% of men said that their appearance directly affects their daily happiness hmm. and productivity. Yeah. I know that's 100% true yeah. for myself. I, for me as well. In relationships of one year or less, 13% of couples say they wish their partners would put more effort into their looks. In relationships of six to nine years, 43% of couples would like their partners to put more effort to look attractive. Hmm. And 36% of all respondents wish that their partners would try to impress them mm. with their looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I understand that as well. Yeah, like, especially if you're going out and part of making it special is to perhaps put on a cute new outfit and and uh, do your hair really nice. And sometimes I know that there have been times between you and I, Brad, where I'll get dressed up for something yeah. and then you will wear the same old, same old hoodie. Uh, yeah, hoodie. And how are these cargo shorts? Let's go to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> we look great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I understand it. And I think that is something that I am taking more and more into account uh, the further into our relationship we go. I don't know if I'll ever be able to pull off the looks that Yukio and Storm deliver here. Me neither. And I have never, even in my young single days, I've never put to, like, I never felt confident putting an outfit together that specifically looks sexy. Uh -huh. Like that was never my in with someone. What I would do is I would come across as like, look how super cute and chill I am. Yeah, right, right. And then that's how I would seduce them. <laughs> yeah, well, well, neither of us are clubbers. We don't go no. out clubbing. So we wouldn't be in this situation uh, that Aurora and Yukio are in. There is a long chapter in the normal bar about maintaining your looks for your partner. And I'm not going to get into details, but I actually found this book super triggering yeah. and problematic because yeah. there's a difference between, um, there's a difference between just, hey, let's put ourselves together. Let's make sure that we're taking care of our mind, body, and spirit so that you're fully present and, and excited for your partner. Like, and trying to maintain how you looked at the beginning of your relationship, like meeting an impossible ideal. Um, like if you are in a relationship and it is ideal, like it is a till death do you part relationship and you're looking for something for the long term, you and your partner are not going to look the same at the end of your relationship, you know? Aging you, is beautiful, evolution is beautiful. And I've said it before, I'm gonna say it again, narratives, are beautiful. The time that you spend together, the fact that you wear that on your face and you wear that in your on your body and your body is part of just one part of your story, like all of that is sexy and there and you have to be okay with your partner seeing you change. And that's something that I'm always working on how, like how much of how I feel about myself is still connected to a number on a scale. That's something that I'm like trying to evolve out of, but it, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but I have the confidence that Brad always finds me sexy. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there is something incredibly appealing about change, about aging. There is an excitement to who your partner is growing into. 
And that is something we are often denied with comic book characters and superheroes in particular because they have to stay sort of the same. You know, there's only so much evolution they're allowed to be. But when we do get jumps in evolution, like that is very exciting. Or like when you meet old man Logan or old man Batman, as you see in The Dark Knight Returns, like like you're like, oh, look what. Look what Bruce Wayne could be. Mm. Like that that's that's part of the appeal of those stories. I love the idea of a comic book that is being told in real time. Yes. And you see the character age every single year. Lisa, you got to read Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley's Spider-Man life story. Oh yeah. Where it You have it told me that about takes it. him from teenager to old man and I mean it that is an incredibly thrilling adventure. And they're going to be doing it uh, uh, upcoming with Fantastic Four. They're going to do a Fantastic Four life story here in May to celebrate the 60th anniversary of uh, FF and the Marvel Universe. How exciting. Yeah. Like, I want more of that. I want the boyhood of comic books. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Richard Linklater doing a comic book. I want to see it. Please. Yes. It's going to be so long. So long. <laughs> <laughs> but, Lisa, we haven't even gotten to Callisto yet. We got to get to Callisto. But I'm not even ready to leave the club scene yet. Oh, no. Because once she's in the club, Storm becomes intrigued by this exhibitionist vibe that they've got going on in there. Yep. And she seems really turned on to the idea of people looking at her and her being part of a performance. Have you seen the Russell Crowe, Denzel Washington movie Virtuosity yet? No. Where Russell Crowe is an AI that has somehow gotten out of the computer and he's in a, like a, an artificial body and he's a serial killer. He's a serial killing uh, AI. And the, one of the first things he does is he goes to a club and at that club, it looks very much like the arena where they have all these screens and he loves watching himself on the screen. And you get a big virtuosity Russell Crowe vibe from Storm. Oh, really? That sounds like my nightmare. It's, uh, well, yes, it does sound like your nightmare, but it's Storm's pleasure and it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Plug to Amazon Prime. (laughs) Well, um, once they finally get away for a little bit and they find a private booth, Storm is like, I cannot remember the last time I had this much fun. And Yukio is like, do you ever let yourself have fun? And Storm is a little offended. But then Yukio says, you called me for help. Right, 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 right. So now, like, we think that Storm came here to follow up on this slaver lead for Bogan. But in this conversation, it sounds like she's here to sow some wild oats with her buddy Yukio. Yep, yep. By the end of this book, I find myself super confused about Storm's motivations for being in Tokyo in the first place. Uh, well, one, I th- I mean, I think she is confused herself. I mean, we talked about how she is in this uh, cloudy state, uh, pun intended, uh-huh. when she leaves for Tokyo. I said Madripoor earlier, I realize. Uh, I should have said Tokyo. It's in Tokyo. Oh, thank you for being so transparent, my love. I thought uh, we were just going to redo that if, little part. If I don't say we're actually in Tokyo and not Madripoor, we're going to get so many emails correcting <laughs> me. So we got to say it's in Tokyo, not Madripoor. I know that. But to your point, I think she is confused. I think she is a confused individual. And when she gets to Tokyo, she she needs... She needs her friend and she does need release. 
Yeah, I like to me. I go, is she confused or is she lying? Uh, and I realize that there are like many shades of gray in between. Yeah, but I think to X to the other X Men, she does want to still appear to be this like I am all business. Mutant affairs is my number one priority. While to Yukio, she wants to appear like I'm fun and spontaneous. Well, the joke's on her because she goes to have some fun at this party and live the virtuosity Sid lifestyle. <laughs> but guess what? There is an actual arena with some bad stuff going on in this club. And you know what she says to that bad stuff? <laughs> yeah. Give me a piece of that. I want in. So when she dives into the ring and she dons that like bird mask, mm -hmm. that demonic bird mask, that's her best look in this entire comic. I love that costume. That completes the outfit. Uh, how have I never seen this cosplay? It's so strong. Because it requires a lot of carving. There's, there's some serious craftsmanship there. Long story short, Storm intercedes under the conceit that, hey, I've got to stop this violence. Musclehead is going to kill Silkworm. But in doing so, she ends up winning the fight for herself and getting all of this ardor and applause, and it goes straight to her head. She is totally intoxicated, and now she is fully in the life, despite the fact that Yukio is like, this feels a little trappish to me. And it is, it totally is, but it doesn't matter because she hears that crowd. And I'm just gonna read the, this page where we get the, the, the six panels, the nine panels. Uh, Storm says, I can't hear anything but the roar of the crowd. As they chant my name, it gives me goosebumps. In my whole life, I've never had goosebumps. Such a silly thing to herald so profound a response. As the cheers crack the cage I built around my soul, passion embracing passion, we turn to the most epic of all epic splash pages. I don't even try to dodge the tiger that leaps free. I want to ride it. And that splash page is, it, it is pure nightmare. Like I've never seen a storm image like this as she bolts forth from the arena flying north, flying, I guess, through the roof of the club, it looks like. We like the expression on Storm's face is terrifying. It's angry. It's joyous. It's it's rage. It's passion. It is both hideous and incredibly attractive. It's why you read this book for this splash page. Scott Arcoom. She looks. <laughs> she's gone full tigress. Yeah, she. She yeah, looks yes. animalistic, bestial. Yeah, and I do love that Scaracoom uh, transparent sound effect going right over her cleavage. Yeah, yeah, but we're looking. But it's clear words, so yeah, we can we still get full boobs. We huh. got. We got them. We're not missing them. Yum. Later, Storm's high has completely worn off. She's back in Yukio's apartment and she is brooding mm. and the brooding has affected the atmosphere and it's there we're having some cloudy stormy weather and we get some more exposition from storm saying that she came to Tokyo at the behest of Colonel Vazhin yeah. to infiltrate the global combat mutant subculture. So yeah. now she's there because she was supposed to infiltrate the arena. So it's not at all what she told the X-Men she was going to do. Or Yukio, who is like, hey, my friend needs a little chummy time and right. we're going out clubbing. 
things become even more complicated when that night while they're sleeping, Guido Strongguy, their former teammate, stomps into the apartment, starts to wreck the place, and reveals that, hey, Storm, you do not want to actually get involved with this arena. It is a incredibly abusive atmosphere. But hey, Storm knows this. That's why she's here, Guido. She's not going to listen to you. By winning that bout between Silkworm and Musclehead, she has now become the official champion of that arena. And that comes with certain responsibilities that she could technically get out of if she decides to walk away. But walking away would disenfranchise a whole bunch of lower level fighters, including Guido, who is trying to dissuade her from joining the fight. But he, in, in doing so, he's like, and I'm going to end up on the streets, just another <laughs> penniless slave to this culture. And so she decides against Yukio and Guido's advice to accept her role as champion. And there's like a little nice ceremony with her and Koga. And she's like, so I'm accepting this championship. Does anybody want to face me? Does anybody want to take my title? And that's where we get yeah, the entrance of Callisto. We're nearly an hour into this episode. And now we're going to talk about Callisto and her wild tentacle arms. Did you know, Brad? Yeah that there is an increasing relationship between sexual satisfaction and the number of tentacles your lover <laughs> has. Lisa, I did know this actually. <laughs> yes. I'm uh it's it sounds amazing yeah, to me. I hear it's 90%. <laughs> 90%. There's a 90% increase for every tentacle and Callisto <laughs> has like a billion of she those. She has a lot of tentacles. And why does she have tentacles? Because the real villain of the piece, Mask, former leader of the Morlocks, who Callisto has a very complicated relationship with, has the ability to take people's physiology and mold it as if it was clay. And she gave Callisto these tentacles so she could be a true champion in the ring. So Callisto and Storm start fighting and Yukio and Guido give a little exposition like, ooh, these two people have a lot of history. And Callisto with her tentacles is just wildly throwing knives and just hitting bystanders right and left. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love that splash page where Storm uh, flees into the sky and we get the screaming tiger expression. The other reason you read this comic is for that reveal of Callisto with her tentacles and then that scene where she is chucking knives all over the place. It is, I mean, it's wild. It, at least, it, yeah, it is sexy. And it totally catches Storm off guard and it looks like, Callisto has the upper hand or upper tentacle in this fight. And uh, Storm is like, WTF, we are buds. I thought we were friends now. And Callisto's like, not in the arena, we're not. And if you can't make a commitment to the arena, you have no business being here. Now, in this moment, you certainly would not call Storm and Callisto lovers, would you? No. Perhaps you would call them sworn enemies or at best sparring partners. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you sparring partners. Now is the perfect time for me to ask you oh, no. one of the questions from the normal bar statistical survey. Okay. Are you ready? I am. Um what best describes your relationship with me? And listen carefully because you're only allowed to choose one. Okay. 
Am I your good friend, passionate lover, teammate, sparring partner, best friend, or sworn enemy? I think it's interesting that there's good friend and best friend. I would say best friend. You better say best friend because you're my best friend. <laughs> yeah. Brad and I actually call each other best friends all of the time. It's true. 36% of couples who consider their partner to be their best friend rated their relationships very happy or better. 32% of best friends say that they have a very satisfying sex life. Yeah. So maybe Yukio would be a better partner for Aurora. Yeah, maybe. Obviously, people who chose sparring partner or sworn enemy were most likely to categorize their relationships as unhappy. So maybe this isn't the best venue for Aurora and Callisto to be kicking off their relationship. I mean, I don't think they are together forever couples. Like, I, you, you know. You don't think of them as an OTP? I don't think of them as an OTP, but I do think of them as an interesting fling. Oh, yeah. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think that they have a lot in common mm. of where they are mentally in their lives at this moment. And there is a bond there that is genuine and it, that you can't break. Yeah, and as particularly where Storm is with her relationship with the X-Men yes. and and feeling this urge to go out on her own and establish her own identity. Yes. I really appreciate you calling me your best friend as opposed to a good friend because 16% of couples who considered their partner a good friend rated their relationships very happy or higher and only 8% of them, of good friends, considered themselves sexually satisfied. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, I mean when, you, like, when you use the word good friend in a relationship, oh, they're a good friend. I mean, it's, it's just not very strong language. Mm. It, like, to me, it implies issues. Of passionate lovers, they are predictably the most happy with their sex life, though only 33% of people who describe their relationship as extremely happy are with passionate lovers, while 42% of extremely happy people are with their best friend. Here's one of my pet peeves with uh, the normal bar, is that we can't compare, I don't have the information to compare our more people who are best friends very happy in their relationship directly with our more people who are with their passionate lover more mm. happy in their relationship. We don't get to see those statistics side by side. Those who chose their partners as their teammate were the most likely to describe their relationship as slightly unhappy. Interesting. And it didn't matter if they were child rearers or not. Huh, okay. So what does this mean for our ex-couples who often consider themselves teammates? Because people who go like, oh, my partner is my teammate is probably slightly unhappy in their romantic relationship. I think it comes down to what your priority is. Like, is being a teammate a priority or is being in a relationship a priority? That's another thing that bugs me about this question is you can only pick one. Right. So I wish this was a ranked list where like, okay, it's okay to be a teammate if it's like your second or third priority, but if it's number one, you're in big trouble. Now, it is also worth noting, Lisa, that Callisto, in that first battle where she's chucking all those knives at Storm, 
is under the control of Mask, who has used her two henchmen, Purge and Paradise, to manipulate her brainwaves, Callisto's brainwaves. And according to the rules of the arena that were never laid out to us before, if she wins the fight while under mind control, then the win is invalid. But the reveal of that information is too late anyway, because Mask has fully taken over this organization. She's running the show. And she seems to have it in for Storm specifically. And we find out later that Mask has been controlling everything from the behind the scenes, specifically to get some kind of revenge on Storm. And she seems to have Storm's number. And she she says to her, like, you and Callisto are so of a piece. Yeah. Far more alike than either of you will ever expect. But I found her shadow and wrapped it round her so tightly. And I broke her and I'm going to broke you, break you and you're going to thank me for it. And guess what? Mask is not wrong because even though Storm realizes that she is in this completely corrupt and broken system, she never gives up the idea that she loves yes. fighting in front of a crowd. So when you get to that final issue and it's revealed that the person who has been in that dark corridor at the beginning of every issue is Storm, she is being manipulated by Mask, but she's still loving being in the fight. She's still on that tiger riding it viciously. Mask is now touring Storm and Callisto from arena to arena. And the next place we see them is in London, facing down Quills, Dervish, Lariat, and Lamprey. And Storm and Callisto seem to be enjoying themselves oh, they're loving very it. much. They're loving it. But Storm knows that Mask is going to make them pay for it later. So on the surface of being a champion in the arena is a lot of glitz and glamour, but behind the scenes, they're being tortured, they're being thrown in dungeons, and they're being treated as slaves. I think there's another splash page early on in the fourth issue that's worth noting, and it's when they are having a blast mm. destroying these other mutants in the ring. And Callisto, you know, has Storm lifted over her head using all her tentacles, and Storm is wrapped up all in them tentacles. Yeah, she is. And Mask in the corner, dressed in like a Mad Hatter attire, is not enjoying the pleasure that Callisto and Storm are having in the arena. Because this is supposed to be Mask's revenge, and she can't enjoy a revenge if they're enjoying it. So she finds another way to get her <laughs> satisfaction, and so she starts negotiating with Tullamore Vogue. Who's the slaver from all the way back in the first issue. So maybe Storm has been on task this I entire time. I have no idea. But Mask later tells Storm that she offered Vogue her and Callisto as a pair, but Vogue only wanted Storm because he has some kind of grudge against her. And Mask asks Storm if she'll worship him, and he says yes. We do get a shot of Mask 
negotiating with Tullamore Vogue. And do you see that he has those two gimps at his feet all wrapped up in leather on dog leashes? Did you know that according to the normal bar, (laughs) 86% of all men and women are intrigued by kinky sex? That's 78% of women and 94% of all men. If we split people into two genders, which is not a thing... 83% of women consider their partners just right, 11% felt their partners are too prudish, and 6% felt that their partners were too kinky. Compare that to 39% of men who think their partners are too prudish, while 1% consider their partners too kinky. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, You know, I was going to say like, well, I don't, I'm not really into whips and chains and stuff. But then I'm like, but Brad, you really do like Callista with all those tentacles, so... (laughs) Well, they never actually define what kinky sex is. So does it mean my partner needs to have a thousand tentacles or drag me around on a leash? Or does it just mean, like, a, a position other than missionary? I mean, I guess so, yeah. Out of the norm, whatever norm is. And while the normal bar gives that result from the survey, they never contextualize that with more information or go into the like gender politic ramifications of men feeling entitled to controlling the sex, Uh like the way that their partner wants to have sex with them. To me, it comes down to the way women are socialized to please their partner. So if a woman says, I'm not satisfied with the sex that I'm having with my partner, it somehow reflects poorly on her, like that she is not creating Mm -hmm. an environment in which good sex can happen. Where when a man says, I'm not satisfied with the sex that I'm having with my partner, it says something bad about her. So either way, the blame Uh, about sex never falls on the man. This is an instance where I would have really loved to see a side-by-side comparison of homosexual couples versus heterosexual couples. When you take that gender politic out of the bedroom, when you're having sex with someone of the same gender, are you more likely to to be satisfied with the level of kink in your relationship. The normal bar as you present it does feel incomplete. Like the whole spectrum is not being covered there. They never go into the deeper implications of what these survey statistics actually could indicate or actually mean. All they're like is, hey women, try to stay in shape. It's like a 200 page Cosmo article of like how to please your man. And with that, you fully condemned the normal bar, Lisa. (laughs) I did. Yet we're still using Using it for two more episodes. No, just one. No, two more episodes, oh, Lisa. No. <laughs> two more episodes. So what I really dig about the final issue is Storm and Callisto are constantly under surveillance while they are chained in the dungeon. You know, there's the spy cam. Koga's looking in on them. Uh, the guards, they're fully aware of what they're doing. So they can't really, like, communicate while they're locked up. The only place where they can have a conversation is in the arena while they are fighting. And that adds another layer of excitement and titillation to their relationship as they are back-to-back as champions. We know from our last episode with the normal bar with Richter and Shatterstar 
that the main ingredients for romance are privacy, novelty, and surprise. Mm. There, so there couldn't possibly be a hotter date for these two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And since we're both coming into this story as Storm and Callisto shippers, this is the moment where you're like, okay, it's happening. We're bringing all our history from the early Claremont stories to this moment. It's very satisfying. And the results of their conspiring are a success. Yes. Which means that they have good communication. And guess what, Brad? Oh, no, here comes some stats. 30% of people who consider themselves to be unhappy in their relationship list better communication as their number one desire. I mean, we talk about communication all the time on this podcast. I think if there was one running theme throughout the entire two years of this show, it's communication. But that is also the broadest possible thing (laughs) that you can say. (laughs) Just like they don't define what kinky sex is, they also don't define Define. what communication Uh is. A lot of the times when we're talking about it, we're saying expressing yourself expressing your inner desires, right? But communication can also be physical communication. It can be, it could be email communication. We have no idea what they mean by communication, but okay, so I already said, 30% of unhappy people, number one desire, better, better communication. Compare this to the desire of persons who consider themselves extremely happy in their relationship. Do you know what their number one desire is? I don't. It's nothing. They desire of nothing. (laughs) Well, lucky them. La-dee-da. For the men, the second most listed desire was sex, and for women, it was communication. Uh, So their first desire was nothing, (laughs) but if you make me go on, it's more sex and more communication. Do you know what the exception was? No. France. Their number one issue was <laughs> lack of affection. And I think Remy would agree with this. Uh, I, that's, from Rogue, because yeah, they're not allowed to touch, though, in this timeline they falling are. Falling into stereotypes there. Ah, normal bar. And he's not actually French. He's a Louisianan francophone. Yeah, he's a Cajun. But still, the joke stands. Here's a hilarious statistic. 91% of survey takers considered themselves to be good communicators, while 30% of survey takers considered their partners to be poor communicators. (laughs) So there are relationships of people who uh, consider themselves a good communicator while they consider their partners partners a poor communicator, but it takes two Two people to to communicate. So uh, what evidence do you have if uh, that you're a good communicator if there's no communication happening? Though 78% of same-sex couples consider their partners to be Great communicators, which is another area that, and back rubs, if you listen to our last episode with Richter and Shatterstar, where homosexual relationships are doing better than heterosexual relationships. To wrap up the arena narrative, while Callisto and Storm are plotting against Mask, Guido and Yukio have partnered with Koga to form a rebellion of the arena fighter. Koga tricks Mask to go into Lila Cheney's quarters. Who's Lila Cheney? Dude, we do not have time to get into <laughs> Lila Cheney. You look it up on Wikipedia. They're in the quarters. Koga asks Mask for a partnership. Mask says, you got to seal the deal in blood. Offer up Yukio. Storm slit her throat. Storm slits Yukio's throat. But wait a minute. 
She doesn't actually. So Mask leaves, leaving Poster Boy and Purge with Koga and Yukio and the fighters and all that. And Yukio springs back to life and is like, isn't Aurora the best friend ever? She slit my throat just enough for it to be super bloody but not actually kill me. It's time to throw a rebellion. The panel where Yukio points to her slit throat and shows it off to Guido and Yukio has the brightest smile on her face and her neck is just gushing blood. It Black gives blood. That gives me the heebie-jeebies. Guido, Yukio, and the other fighters take on Poster Boy, Purge, and all of Mask's other goons while Storm and Callisto take Mask and they have this rebellion and they win. And in the last moment, Mask tries to negotiate with Callisto saying like, I can restore your arms. And Callisto's like, no thanks. That moment is, I mean, that's a great moment where she's like, no, I like my tentacle arms. This is me now. And that's why Callisto has tentacle arms to this day. No, no, she doesn't. To this day. No, no, she doesn't. To this very day. Okay, fine. She should. She She should, should, right? She should still have them. I wish she did hanging out on Krakow with her tentacle arms, but she doesn't, Lisa. I'm sorry. (laughs) But in this moment, the final moments when she says, no, look, I am perfect, but you, dear, you could use a little work. And her tentacle picks up a piece of glass, a little shard, and goes to jab it in Mask's face. And we have a panel of the exterior of the club or of the sky rise. And we hear the scream of Mask, but we don't actually see what Yukio, Storm, and Callisto do to Mask. Do you think that Mask can do her own, like, can mush her own face? Yeah, she can. Okay, so whatever they do, it can be super painful but moot, because she's just going to be like, I'm Marilyn Monroe again. But super painful, Lisa. And it's it's more about the fact that these three women just go to town on Mask's face. Yeah. Right, like, it's, it's, a, it's a heroic moment, question mark, but it is a victory. And how do you celebrate Hot Tub? Yes, they go back to Tokyo, and we get... To see Yukio truly as a third wheel, <laughs> while uh, Storm uh, is being fully embraced by all each and every one of Callisto's tentacles. I love the final few panels of this book, and I do like how those tentacles are all over Storm. Are they not at all on Yukio? Mm, no, it does not seem like Yukio gets any tentacle love. Though we know from our previous episode and the normal bar, uh, Storm and Callisto can get used to the idea of the amount of PDA they show to decline over time. Oh, come on. Let's just enjoy this moment, Lisa. Look at me being a total Yukio sitting in between you (laughs) and the amazingness that is this hot tub scene. I mean, the scene, like, it is a great final page. And, you know, Yukio does feel like a third wheel in the way that she's introduced in this page, right? Because the first panel at the top of the page, you get, like, a full-on shot I guess it's Callisto's point of view looking at Storm. Storm's head is enveloped in tentacles. You know, like, what a journey we've gone on. The second panel uh, at the top is Callisto, now from Storm's point of view. And Callisto is looking like, you know, her engines are revved, tentacles up. And then the third panel is Yukio off to the side. And so she does feel a little bit like an invader of this moment. Don't worry, Storm and Callisto are going to have the opportunity to spend a lot of quality time together 
because Callisto has agreed to join Storm in turning the arenas into a safe haven for mutants. And not just the fighting ones, but all mutants. And what a perfect job for the former leader of the Morlocks. Absolutely. So, of course, Storm has to wrap it all up into a moral on this final page. And she says, what a journey. I came here as a favor for a friend. Did you? <laughs> it Was the friend Yukio or was it Colonel Vazen or whatever his name was? And see where I end up thinking about building a private army. Oh, wait, that wasn't the moral. I just read the wrong quote. Here's the moral. Storm says, we all have it in us to be gods or monsters or even just plain folks but we'll never achieve our destiny if we're afraid. And Yukio asks, like, do you mean mutants? And Callisto finishes Storm's thought and says she means everybody. So that's Storm's takeaway from the arena, Lisa. But what is yours? What are you pulling from this conversation, this relationship, this section of the normal bar and applying to your life? From the story of Storm and the arena, For me, the personal moral is you need to find outlets for every aspect Mm. of yourself because Storm was feeling constrained and feeling limited by having to be Storm the X-Man all of the time. She She was in a place of despair at the start of this comic. Absolutely. So when she entered the arena for the first time and she got in touch with this kind of exhibitionist gladiator side of herself, it just ran completely rampant. It's like somebody who was um, trying not to eat chocolate and then was presented with an entire chocolate cake. She just like went completely wild. And I think that as she starts this new journey with Callisto, where she is kind of corralling all of these arena fighters and mutants and creating spaces where they can truly be themselves, either be fighters or just be mutants, perhaps this will give her, and her relationship with Callisto, perhaps this will give her um, more range of Storms, Auroros, she gets to be. Yeah, I like for me, my takeaway is, you know, while she was in a state of uh, depression or despair or whatever you want to call it at the start of it, she knew something was wrong and she did know that she needed to get away and find out what that was. She began to resent the part of her that was an X-Men all of the time. Yes, but 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 she did something about it, right? She could have just stayed with the team and suffered in silence and let that uh, depression fester, but she went looking for answers and she thought the answers were, you know, let's go find Yukio, let me go release some of this tension. And then, you know, in investigating this arena situation, she was able to like explore this other side of herself and this emotion. But what is this going to do with her relationship with the X-Men because she told them that she was going to Tokyo just for all business. My takeaway from it is that 
she needs to communicate. Uh, communication's coming back again. She needs to communicate those feelings with her teammates if she's going to remain being a teammate and saying like, look, this is what I did. This is what I needed to do. Um, a lot of good came from it, but I was feeling this way because I was feeling that way, right? I needed this because of that. Nobody is the same person all of the time. Or to all people. That's another point. And I, and I think that you don't have to be afraid of other people not understanding that completely. I think that, you know, Bishop was like, you are just cocky and you're proud. I think that if Bishop knew what she was feeling inside, he wouldn't say those things about, like she doesn't, because she's trying to keep her feelings secret, she's coming off as austere and cold. and, And I think that, he wouldn't have judged her if she just said, like, I'm having a feeling right now. I want to revise what I just said, because in hearing you talk, I was coming to it. I, I came to another conclusion. Mm-hmm. She like when she goes back to the X-Men, she does not need to unveil or even communicate to them what she was feeling before and what she went through by going through this experience and now having this other avenue and having these other friends outside of the X-Men. She has um exercise those feelings that were festering at the start of the comic. So she can still go back and talk to Bishop and be the leader and actually just behave the way she was before, knowing that she has this other place too and another purpose too. But if they find out that she has this other place and other purpose, I don't think that they would ever resent her for it. And no. I think that that's what she was afraid of. She was afraid of if they got the sense that she wasn't feeling confident or that she was feeling constrained, that that would somehow diminish her her in their eyes. And I think that um, we all need to give ourselves permission to um, create different environments for all of our different selves. More importantly, they need to get back to the conversation of being police for the X-Men. Yeah, because that's a terrible idea. And like that was a real problem that wasn't about Storm as a person or what Storm was feeling. It's about what Storm's decisions were. And so those decisions need to be addressed, especially between Bishop and Storm. What I'm learning from the normal bar is at least for me, like the statistic is not the end of the conversation. And a statistic is not a support of whatever, whatever, like if you're going to say, okay, this statistic means something, it means something for 39 or 40% of men want the way their partners have sex with them to be different. Like whatever you say, that the reason of that is that also equally has to be supported by science. I don't think that that's permission for you to then muse aloud what that statistic could possibly mean. You know, what your mom always says is that statistics can be manipulated. Oh, yeah. I mean, the normal bar is a great example for your mother's case, right? Because clearly these statistics are not the whole story, but they're being used as if they are the whole story. And so my takeaway from the normal bar is you, you need to like, 
you need to check your statistics. And when people are throwing statistics at you, you need to know, you got to like examine the research that's going behind those numbers. And you also have to consider the source of the statistic. Yes. Because this was an online test yes. that was yeah. on Reader's Digest yes. and AARP. It, it's not <laughs> a census. Yeah. This was a survey that people took on the internet on a whim. So you have to consider who are the kinds of people who are interested in relationship surveys? Are you going to get a fair assessment of every single uh, every every single demographic on, on the entire planet? Yeah, certainly not the normal bar. So um, I have, just spoilers, I have already read the methodology section of the normal bar, it's like three pages, so it too is not a complete story, but um, I'm going to get into that on our next episode. I'm looking forward to it, and speaking of next episodes, what's the couple we're gonna be covering? Ooh, that's your job, you tell me. Next week, X Couple Month continues, and Lisa, I promise you're going to enjoy it. Generation X, the 2017 era. That's We're, practically the present. That's right. We're going to be covering the entire series. That's issues one through 87, Lisa. Oh, no. I should have started reading like <laughs> way a long time ago. Don't worry. That's some legacy numbering silliness. It's actually just issues one through 12. Phew all written by Christina Strain, and it's steeped in teenage romantic distress. But we're going to focus mostly on the romance between the characters of Hindsight and Morph. It's adorable, y'all. But it's time for us to leave this arena to get our matching victory tattoos. Oh, no. Tramp stamps. <laughs> Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, mm. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you want to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. Five stars only. And until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Stop right there so I can collect my thoughts.